Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies. I am your host, Tasha Zaitz, and I'm currently working on a podcast series about the Asian market. It's planned to be published in the following months, but because it requires a lot of focus and research, I'm not publishing a new episode today, but sharing with you the discussion about digital health and healthcare in Africa with Mo Kalantum, which was first published in early 2018. I still find it very inspiring because Mocha's insights illustrate how important the culture is in solutions design and scaling. Since the discussion was recorded in the past, it is edited to only have information still relevant today. You will hear from a fantastic serial entrepreneur who I seriously suspect learned how to freeze time. Going backwards with his CV, he was nominated as 2016 Top 100 Global Thinker by Foreign Policy Magazine for his work as founder of the non-profit 2020 Microclinic Initiative that recycles t-shirts into baby clothes and donates them to low-income mothers to promote safe delivery and quality postnatal care in rural Kenya. When it comes to his background in education, he obtained his Doctor of Medicine training at Faculty of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences in Cameroon. He has a diploma in Nutrition and International Child Health from Uppsala University in Sweden. And that's not all. He also holds a doctorate in pharmacology from the University of Rochester, New York. And he's a graduate of the Master's in Healthcare Management at the Harvard School of Public Health. The person I'm talking about is Moka Lantum. We discussed healthcare IT and digital health adoption in Africa. Enjoy the conversation and please, if you like the podcast, take a few seconds to rate it in iTunes, leave a comment or review so others interested in healthcare and digital health will have an easier way of finding it. I think we're ready. Yeah, let's let's try. So, Mocha, I guess, you know, uh, I did a little bit of research okay. on Mocha with written with CH. And we all know, you know, it's coffee and chocolate. How big of a fan of coffee and chocolate are you? Oh my goodness, I I love coffee. It's a uh it's it, it keeps us going. And uh, good coffee also it's, comes from Cameroon, my birth country. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly do enjoy coffee. I even love chocolate even more. And it's also good for the, um, for the health of, of the individuals. So. That's what I was just about to say. You know, it's a perfect combination of a positive effect on the cardiovascular system and some happiness with serotonin out of chocolate. Well, definitely, uh, you know, having the two does a good, it's, it's good, it's good for the body, keeps the mind sharp, you know, and, um, uh, sometimes I like tea as well because once as I take too much chocolate and I mean, and, and coffee, my brain is just on fire. So I'm also a tea guy, you know. But, but your, your name actually has a different meaning in your local language, right? Yes, uh, so Mocha comes from the, uh, the dialect in Cameroon, uh, Bakweri, and it means hidden character. It, um, well, it 
the name translates into the rafters of a house. So the wooden work that supports the roof, you don't see it. And that's why it represents hidden characters. So it, it's, you, you, it's, uh, you're the strength of the house, but you're never seen. And that is what Mocha stands for in the language. And that maybe is more reflective of my personality. Kind of understated, but I'm there. <laughs> you're, you're a serial entrepreneur and you're, uh, very, Involved in building solutions for uh, healthcare, you also have a degree from public health in um, from Harvard. Maybe we can start there. How did you decide for this area of expertise, and what perspective did going to the U.S. give you? I believe very strongly that we are born uh, with a certain calling, and. I certainly feel social entrepreneurship is more of a calling than actually a job. Uh, if you look at my past, I have always been the person to set trends. I've always been the person to look for opportunities to make change, change that affects lots of people. I've never done anything just to make myself feel good. Uh, you know, it has to have a bigger meaning ever since I was a kid. Also, I think it's important to recognize that uh, my mother was or is a women's rights activist. So being an activist, she brings a, or she sort of, uh, inculcated in us the desire to really change things that we don't like. If you don't like it, you know, you try to make sure that you change it, be part of the change you want to see. But also, uh, my father is a global health expert. So I grew up in a house where global health issues were very much discussed. Malnutrition, uh, family planning, and then, you know, public health systems, how to uh, implement public health systems at scale. So those two, I think, influenced my choice, professional choice, and also my bias towards entrepreneurship in healthcare. Now, going to the United States uh, really forces you to think about, I can do it. I can, I can uh, be the change that I want to be. So you take more of an active role, whereas many economies discourage entrepreneurship. They want you to have a steady job. They want you to be, you know, be guaranteed a salary for the next 50 years. Whereas when you go to America, your identity forces you to say, who am I? And really, what do I want to be known for? And that forces you to be more entrepreneurial than, than otherwise. So all those factors put together, I think, have contributed to where I am today. And I believe very strongly that our generation is a generation of entrepreneurship. Our fathers came out of big government where they set up government systems in the African market, our generation must bring entrepreneurship as a tool to transform economies and bring development, you know, for those who need it the most. Many entrepreneurs see Africa and countries in development as a very good market to go to because there's so much potential for things to be built there. And a lot of these markets, Kenya including, are the the services there are paid out of pocket so the private market is big and kenya is if my information is correct is attributing only two percent of the gdp uh to healthcare so how do you see the opportunities that you have and the possibilities for building new things 
I guess this also goes to how difficult it is to get funded for whatever you want to do. Maybe you can draw from how you started building your different solutions and what solutions do you have there? Yeah, the um, Africa market is ripe for for entrepreneurship, is ripe for investments, it's ripe for innovation. Uh, I tend to define the climate based on need and based on uh, the, uh, the, the, the access to channels. Now, the need is there, and so that's why it's a very attractive market. You can put it together a business case, and there is a possibility of scaling the business in countries like, you know, Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, and stuff. Some of the African countries are too small where once as you do your business model and you look at your potential market, it is very difficult to do. However, if you are in the health, education, agriculture space, the issues transcend and go go beyond the boundaries of a given country. So a well-designed solution has the potential to scale. The second thing is that access to the customer is the most difficult thing to do in the market. Why? Because you do not have formal channels. That is what makes the market difficult. In developed markets, you can promote very easily on Facebook. You can do TV ads. You can do newspaper ads. You can do a lot of things. In that market, to reach your customer, there is almost no direct path in most cases. So how do you do it? And how does that go uh, together with the idea of uh, Africa, especially Kenya, being very uh, mobile-driven? Uh, so... Kenya is the land of where M-Pesa was born, the mobile banking. So that's where I, the idea of the opportunity also comes from. Sure. Definitely the mobile money and the tech ecosystem, all those are enablers. But the fundamentals of business remain the same. You must be able to reach a customer. You must be able to segment them. You must be able to quite convert the customer. That costs. Now, if you are in certain sectors here, for example, if in a developed market, all you need to do is get one insurer and you're in business. In the Kenya market, you have to work very hard to acquire your customers. And that is why you see many businesses end up, once as you get the customer base, you throw many products at that customer. And so you hardly see a startup or an early growth company just offering one little niche product because you want to maximize your channel as much as possible because of the customer acquisition cost. And so uh, so you have to innovate in the African market at three levels. You must have a good product, no question about it. You must innovate at the business level perspective, and you must innovate in your channel strategy. If you don't innovate in all those three, you would not have a viable business in the African market. And that is why many people come with very great apps, with very great solutions, but they don't scale because they forgot to innovate on the business model and they forgot to innovate on the channel strategy. So how many of these solutions, these apps, are coming from the Kenyan market and how many of them are from the outside? Because I imagine that a lot of foreigners have the wrong idea of what the market needs, whereas the local developers are the ones with the advantage of actually knowing what could work well. I see the um, the development of apps not necessarily as a product, but as a tool 
for certain transactions to happen. So I think it's okay to have many apps and coming from anywhere. Now, we do have certain technologies that are developed for systemic issues, like Uber did, is doing very well in Kenya. At the time, Uber Kenya was the fastest growing uh, city in, uh, or Nairobi had the fastest growing number of Uber riders. Now, there are also certain solutions that have to be very localized. And I think the local innovators and entrepreneurs, it is the, it is the, they are the ones who should lead the charge to design solutions for very local needs. But the global market, the Kenya and the African market is also part of the global market for certain other needs, and it's very fair to have innovators from around the world address those issues. Uh, it is easy to, to do software development. It is very difficult to get human beings to adapt their behavior around a new software. You can, you can draw from your experience here. What kind of solutions have you designed so far? How did you do the scaling? And how did you deal with the issues around implementation that you just mentioned? Uh, when we started this work in 2010, 2011, you can say that the government was the primary buyer of services. And that is quite true in, I would say, easily 60 to 70% of the African economies. So at the end of the day, if you have a technology, if you have to scale, you have to always think about the government would have to procure the services and give. That means there's a certain cost of capital, there's a certain timeline that you have to think about as a default. However, over the last five, six years, we're seeing diversification of the economies where privatization is becoming very strong. There is a, 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 a more urgency around the time value for money. What does that mean is that people are looking for services and are willing to pay independently for services. People are beginning to value time as, as an asset, which you know, in a government-driven economy, it's not the case. And so with that, it creates, it opens up the market for very interesting businesses and, and amazing things are happening in the African market. It's important at the end of the day that if we're designing technology for healthcare, we must have a very clear framework in terms of how it is saving people's lives. Uh, technology for data collection, technology for health records management is not sufficient. There is no patient out there wanting to pay for their health record to be stored digitally. There's none that I've met. There is no doctor who will, who is willing to pay for that data to be archived that I've met. But people would pay for the value-added experience that comes from the digitization that happens in the market. So, you know, so our solution and our strategy is to make sure that we are thinking about the ecosystem end-to-end -end from when you leave your home or you, you seek to when you get into the doctor's office. We need to make sure that you know where you're going, you know your cost, and when you're buying, you at least know the opportunities to save in a very material way when you're shopping for healthcare. So basically what you're saying is that what sells is a good user experience. And because there's no regulation that would require, let's say, healthcare providers to have good EHR systems, EHR systems are more of a nice-to-have, not-need-to-have thing, consequently not being as fastly adopted as we would expect. That's very correct, yeah. We are yet to see policies that mandate 
the use of healthcare records. Uh, the uh, the national systems are not going to fund that, and so it is going to be entirely dependent on the private sector to do that. And 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 so in the absence of that. Really, data is about creating a customer journey that is dramatically improved over the regular customer journey. You know, in a in a non-digitized system. Now, what does that mean concretely? That means you could do a lot of digitization, and there is no value for the ecosystem or for the payer. And that is why many vendors of EMR systems do not survive in the African market. How did you deal with the whole marketing and scaling problem reaching the customers? The question of scaling technology is one that is completely underestimated. It is an expensive undertaking, regardless of which economy you are in. So how did how did you do it? Is it since you said that uh, Facebook advertising and modern ways of reaching people through social media is not that prevalent here? What did you do? Door to door leaflets. What was the solution? Oh, even door to door leaflets is too expensive because if we are trying to make you know a commission on a sale, and the sale is is even let's say ten dollars, you know. Uh, and we're making 10% or 20%, that is only $2. If you put a flyer, that's 50 cents. That's 25% of your margin right there. So even flyers don't work for us. It is about initially talking to people one-on-one and engaging customers directly. I, I believe, and there is definitely proven that, that is always a good place to start with technology. You earn your customers one by one. Don't rush for the market. The market, you gain the customer, and that's the least expensive way. That is what Airbnb did, and Airbnb was successful. They earned customers one at a time, no mass marketing, and then they have very loyal customers and very loyal users. And that's what we're doing. There's a certain barrier that we're experiencing in healthcare because somebody may may be aware of iSecure but not be sick in two years. So. Is a, is, there's nothing for them to do on the application, right? You can, this, the, because of patient privacy, you don't even know when people are sick. So it's a very difficult strategy to pull off. And you have to be very humble in looking at your growth projections in healthcare and technology. What about scaling beyond borders of your own country in Africa? Stereotypically, Africa is seen as this one blank page, but if you know how many different countries, how many different cultures are there? What does that mean for you in terms of uh, healthcare and spreading the solutions in other countries as well? I think, um, you know, once you hit your sweet spot and with the right kind of financing, it's quite easy to scale across uh, uh, different countries. Uh, the big issue that you likely to face is currency fluctuations uh, based on different countries and access to talent. So you'd be, do you use the local workforce? And if you use the local workforce, workforce, what's the cost of labor? And then what are the existing channels or what's the existing market you could tap, tap into? Those are the big questions you really have to ask yourself. But technology itself is quite scalable. You could use iSecure anywhere in Africa today. But the question is, do we have the channel strategy in each, can we pull up the channel strategy in each country? And that could be that's something that we're looking at. But I would say the ubiquitous nature of what we're trying to solve gives us the potential to, to, to get into many countries. Many, many countries don't have access to affordable medicines. One thing that we see 
now is that new technologies such as drones or telemedicine are very appropriate for develop the countries in development because you have the issue of people being in the rural areas where there's no healthcare facilities. How many of these technologies do you already see in place and actually used? That's the uh, the paradox of innovation in healthcare. Where the need is greatest, the ability to pay is lowest. So uh, we are not seeing telemedicine solutions really su- being successful or teleradiology for that matter, simply because where the business case, the, the, um, the logic behind those is to make sure that people who are in remote areas have access to the doctors. But then the cost of that service is not low enough to support the deployment of that technology and pay for the services that are being rendered at the other end. And so there is still no value proposition. The technology exists. There's nothing to innovate in telemedicine or there's really nothing to innovate. At least it could get better. Uh, but we, but the business model doesn't hold water. That's one of the problems that I see when it comes to digital solutions. Everybody is expecting them to save money, but let's say for teleconsultations and services like that, the payers are usually not very open to paying the same amount that you would pay for an in-person visit not really taking into account the investment that you need to make as a healthcare provider to do the service and that sometimes the the required time for the consultation is not different than an in-person visit that's correct yeah so if you need, if you need a radiologist the radiologist services would cost you something and if we don't lower the cost of the radiology service then telemedicine or teleradiology has very little to offer and when you add the notion of, you know, the cost of data transmission and data archiving, that adds to the cost of that particular uh, service offering. So it, it, it's, it's, it, it's important that we think about the business model innovation side, as I mentioned earlier on, because it's easy to do software, it's easy to do technologies, but many technologies are sitting at the gate, fantastic technologies from drugs to diagnostic test kits, to telemedicine solutions, to EMR solutions, they're sitting at the gate. You, as I mentioned, you have a degree from public health from Harvard. You know the U.S. market, you know the African market. So Kenya is attributing 2% of the GDP to healthcare. U.S. is, we know, a big and expensive system going to around 18 or even more percent of GDP for healthcare. How much do you think this cost could be reduced if somebody would manage to change the prices of um, doctor services? Yes, uh, being a doctor is a good way to earn money in the U.S. They say certainly a, a tiered system, and and in the tiered system, the the time, the billable time for a doctor is very well appreciated, which is not the case in many other uh, economies. Which makes you know the uh, the opportunity to earn a high wage as a doctor less less likely. Now we seeing the U.S. model of high net worth. Uh, 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 high, high pay for, for doctors happening 
So in Kenya and many African countries now, doctors are charging, you know, pretty good dollars for their time, which in a way is, is appropriate, is understandable. But what that does is that it means that, you know, a lot of the populations are going to be uh, excluded from, uh, from specialty care. And so, you know, access to specialty care would be based on means, you know, or your, the kind of insurance you have. And that puts a lot of pressure on the government to provide good primary and tertiary care. And in Kenya, for example, they are doing that. You know, there was a $400 million uh, medical equipment services program that the government launched to make sure that there were diagnostic services, you know, uh, in, in a lot of the hospitals. And that is great. But the, um, but there is a net shortage of providers, of doctors in the, or healthcare professionals, if you will. And so, uh, yes, you could invest in more buildings. You can invest in more equipment. That's the easy part. Building the, um, uh, the labor force to support those systems. That is very difficult to do. That's something that Cuba is doing very well. But for Cuba to do that is because they have very tight policies around the movement of their doctors. If you're training Cuba, you have to stay in Cuba and work. Whereas in the Kenya government, they'll train the doctors and the doctors leave to go work in other countries. Uh, and so because of that brain drain, the question is how much can you invest in building your workforce? And you build a good workforce. Do you keep them or do you lose them? You're losing 40% to 60% of the force workforce you're training to other markets because of good, better pay outside of the country. Then you have to ask yourself, should I keep investing? And that's why I think, you know, some of the work we're doing in, um, from a social and entrepreneurial perspective to say, what are the kinds of service models that we can introduce in the market that guarantee quality and, and, and at the same time guarantee a certain affordable rate? The main two mortality causes in Kenya are HIV and communicable diseases. Do you, do you see any good solutions addressing, solving uh, those problems? Because it's it's here, it's about education, it's about the infrastructure. It's not just about getting a cure for, for HIV. So it, it has to be addressed from a different angle. The, the concern around, you know, uh, communicable diseases is one that is recognized by the policymakers. Uh, however, it would be fair to say that the statistics are maybe garbage, if you will. The, a lot of the statistics that are published, I don't use them for my market studies because very clearly the statistics are, are, are there because they address certain interests, right? And so you can look at any given number of publications and you get a very different numbers. So we really don't know, embarrassingly so, the true drivers of mortality and morbidity. We don't conduct autopsies routinely. Diagnostic tests are not done. So we are completely discounting death from chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, stroke, cancer. Uh, and those are still in the realm of mystery in many healthcare systems in the African market. It, it, you know, that that's a good point. Because when it comes to chronic diseases, you, there's this hypothesis in in healthcare that some stress-related uh, chronic conditions are less prevalent in less developing countries, the so-called hygiene um, uh, theory, where uh, because uh, in the developed countries we live in too sterile uh, environment, then the immune system 
doesn't really get strong enough. But then the, the question of the statistic is, are these diseases really not um, present in the countries in development or are they just not being de detected? We have to recognize that, yes, there's a shift, a growing trend towards you know, increase incidence of non-communicable diseases. That's why we as a company, we're investing in that and making sure that we are not only focused on the communicable disease side. You must also recognize that the global health agenda has been quite centrally coordinated by a lot of the big development entities. So there's a lot more data collection happening in the infectious disease space compared to the non-communicable disease. And you can also say, and I think it's a fair assessment, that if you want more dollars for your programs, you have to have worse statistics, right? And so you're going to have, if you will, a bias towards, you know, um, towards overstating you know, the case in some instances. Why? Because where people would choose to do the work is where maybe it's a hotspot for a disease that is not reflective of the rest of the country. There's an opportunity for big data to really bring shed light. And we as a company, we are saying we want to bring on board partners who can work together to leverage the data we have. Because I realize it's, you can be good at collecting data. You, you're not necessarily good at interpreting the data. And you also definitely not necessarily probably the best person to make the data convert into sort of actionable items. We, from the developed, uh, country's perspective point of view, we see the developing countries as the place that has the opportunity not to make mistakes in IT development that we did, where a lot of solutions are burdening doctors, you know, and then because new technologies are popping up, countries in development have the opportunity to leapfrog uh, the development and adoption. Where do you see healthcare in, in the future? And are you missing a strategy that would address development more strategically? Kenya has a vision 2030 uh, document and planning, but I'm not sure it's very specific when it comes to e-health and digital health and healthcare development. That's a, uh, a very good question. I think, you know, I would summarize it as by saying that uh, in the developed markets, many things are in a steady state. What does that mean? Is that if you go to a hospital, they have invested in connectivity, they have invested in equipment, they have training programs. So if you're coming as a vendor for EMR, you're coming to drop your solution in a pretty steady environment with a lot of management in place, policies in place. You don't need to do that. Come to the African market, you have to develop the deployment policy. You have to train, you have to do connectivity, you have to do equipment. Then you put your software, then you maintain your software, and then understand the use case, and then get the, do change management for the customer. You see that the cost is very different, right? So what Vision 2020 calls for is to say we need to figure out how to create an ecosystem where that brings us closer to steady state where individual innovations can thrive. When I hear folks, oh, I have an EMR, I say, that's great, but it needs to run on computers. How are you going to finance the computers? 
it needs to run on connectivity. How are you going to finance the connectivity? Well, if you expect the patient, to the, the, the hospital to do that, then guess what? You just don't have a business. Why? Because by the time they buy the computers, by the time they do the connectivity, then they pay you for your license. You be, you're the third person to be paid. They have run out of cash. Uh, the owners of hospitals and clinics do not see a priority in investing in those infrastructure costs. They love the software. They want all their cost accounting to be done. They want their inventory to be managed. They want all their patient records to be there. But when you say, okay, to do that, you need to buy 50 computers, do the cabling. That is going to cost you $25,000. Then here's my license. And then you have to do maintenance every year for $10,000 of like, I think we are okay with paper. <laughs> exactly, but on the other hand, we are kind of hoping that maybe computers are going to become obsolete with new technologies such as mobile phones. And if everything is stored in the clouds and securely uh, managed, then I guess you can hope that computers are not going to be needed. And that creates completely different requirements when it comes to infrastructure. Yes, certainly as devices become cheaper and as we go to more, certainly that lowers the barrier of entry, there are certain things that commissions do not replace. So, as I mentioned, the training of the healthcare workers, incentivizing them to use the, whole, the, the software that you developed, is really the big challenge, right? Uh, in the U.S., for that to happen, the um, Accountable Care Act famously known as Obamacare, had to put in place millions and billions of dollars in incentives to get healthcare workers to change their behavior and use software. So what really Obamacare did was it created an environment for technologies to be easily adopted in the healthcare setting. But before that, only 30% of healthcare facilities invested in automation. That is the United States. And you're talking about 2010. So what are you saying it's not just about innovation, but we definitely are going to have to wait for smart regulation to help encourage development of digital solutions? In the, in the healthcare sector, we have to wait for smart regula regulations to force the conversations in the right directions. And also we need to have a bigger appetite to invest in healthcare. I think... People are willing to invest in automobile movement, railroad transportation, and all of those things. And healthcare is always, all well left for somebody else to do. And I think that's why healthcare is lagging in many economies, whereby you know you're not seeing the pace of technology adoption happen in healthcare. In as much as there's a lot of innovation going through, but the barriers of entry are just three orders of magnitude higher. Lower level willingness to invest in healthcare, more regulation around data privacy in healthcare, at the same time the patient doesn't want to pick up an additional bill. Whereas in the other sectors, you're seeing that people are willing to pay more for the experience, the digital experience, right? In terms of we are all subscribed to Netflix, we want to get our movies on time, every day, anytime. We are all have massive data. Uh, we pay massively for data storage. We are on Dropbox, Google Pay, Apple Cloud, and paying for that cost everywhere we go, either through our phones and through our stuff. It is crazy. It is insane that we are willing to, to invest that kind of money for mobility and for social digital usage, but not for healthcare usage. Because healthcare is not fun. 
that seems to be the case and that means we have a lot more work to do to uh, to make sure that technology meets its promise in healthcare. So what keeps you going? What keeps you from still insisting in the industry and being optimistic? You could innovate endlessly in healthcare. You could have an app for anything. You could do it at the end of the day. If you want to run a business, then you must figure out how to get somebody to pay for that. There is opportunity for for business. There's opportunity for, for growth. And so we would continue to be, you know, stay sharp on our toes to figure out, you know, what is the experience that creates maximum value for patients at the same time gives us a fair return on the investments of our or that we're doing. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast and share the episode if you liked it with your network. <laughs> <laughs>